Today's guest was part of the trailblazer generation of cycling in the U.S. who helped pave the way for the future of his then 7-Eleven team and many North American teams and racers that followed. Known affectionately as Wookie by his teammates, he's an Olympic medalist, stage winner at the Giro, and the Tour de France. Plus, he's an overall great human being. Please welcome Ron Kiefel today on Bobby and Jens. Okay, everyone, we have another member of Cycling Royalty today as our guest on Bobby and Jens. Ron Kiefel, welcome to the show. Hey, guys, it's a real pleasure to be here, especially uh, with you two stars in the sport also. You know, it's really a joy to be able to talk to uh, pros, former pros, and, uh, you know, share some of that insight. So I'm glad to be here. Well, I will put my hand up and say that if it wasn't for riders like yourself, and that generation of guys that kind of came together ad hoc, like in that pre-Olympic build back in 1984, I definitely would not be on this podcast or probably have even gotten to, into cycling in the first place. You know, again, thank you for, for joining us. This is going to be a thrill for me because you were one of the founding fathers of cycling here in the U.S. And perhaps not all the younger kids or all of our fans really know how big of an impact you guys had on where and when cycling in the U.S. really started. So I hope we can have a nice little chat here, fill in the gaps a little bit. And yeah, you know, our, our paths crossed um, multiple times, you know, back when we were both younger. But as a fellow kid that grew up in Colorado, how did you get your start? I mean, I got my start in like 84, 85, and you know, you were already an Olympic medalist by then. So let's let's hear it from from you, how how it got started for a kid in growing up in Denver. Well, you know, my uh, parents decided to buy a business. They were looking for some businesses to buy a Dairy Queen, a rental shop, and a bike shop. My dad had apprenticed in bicycles and motorcycles in Germany. So when he had enough, when they were looking for this business, they decided on the bicycle shop. And so this was in 1973 and it was a little tiny hole in the wall called the Wheatridge Cyclery. And so my dad, you know, started working there and my sisters, my two sisters, myself would go there and work and started riding, doing some local tours. Um, my dad helped pay for my first bike, which was a Nashiki competition <laughs> way back when. But um, the, uh, the real start came in 1976 when there was a mechanic at the bike shop and he decided we were talking he said hey you want to go training and i said yeah let's go ride and he said hey you want to try your first bike race and i said yeah sure so i entered my first bike race at the Den denver tech center in, here in denver colorado and that was before they even had any buildings it was just a paved road if you know the area it's like what and uh anyway i crashed 300 meters before the finish line <laughs> did something stupid, overlapped a wheel, passed out. I don't know. Back then, they raced the juniors with the ones and twos. It was kind of crazy. But uh, I love the sports. And so um, that's where I took off. So 76, 77, um, Davis, Finney, and I became real strong competitors. There was a period there when either Davis would win the race or I would win the race. And we'd be racing in the senior one-two races. You know, sometimes we'd lap the field three or four times. And uh, it was always like, who could pull harder? Who could pull faster? And so it really pushed us. So 
1978, Davis became a regular amateur, and I was still a junior. And so tried for the Junior Worlds team and uh, made the Junior Worlds team, um, actually beat Chris Carmichael in the last road race, so that got me on the team. And But we raced the tour, we raced the road race, which was in Washington, D.C., and it was my first international bike race. And, you know, the, this race was happening around Rock Creek Park, and we had Thurlow Rogers off the front, and he uh, got caught, like, right last half a lap, so it was this crazy field sprint. And I was right against the curb, and this Italian guy, and it was the last last hole in the road as everybody's lined up to sprint, and I dove for the hole, he dove for the road, hole, he crashed, I sprinted off, I was leading the junior worlds for about 200 meters, and then everybody went flying by. But, you know, that was the experience of U.S. riding. There wasn't a lot of history. We had George Melt, we had um, uh, Howard, John Howard, Wayne Stedna, those were the kind of the guys, but we came along and we had Eddie B that came in, a Polish coach. And, you know, if you've worked with Eddie at all, you know that he was very strong on the Eastern European style of training, which Jens, you could really school us on. <laughs> and so uh, we went through, you know, through juniors and the early amateur days preparing for the Olympics. And uh, we got to go to Europe. We went to Europe on shoestring budgets. I mean, they would beg for U.S. jerseys. Uh, they'd beg for bikes. You know, it was whatever we could do. But um, I won an early race in Italy. I loved Italy for racing. I mean, I love the food. I love the culture. The people are friendly. And it suited my style of racing. So um, I, won, I won a little race there. And then in 1984, as we were preparing for the Olympics, um, we went over to Italy to race. And we won... I think 60% of the races we entered in 1984. And we were racing against the Russians, the East Germans, the Czechs, the Italians, the French. And it was really quite an amazing experience. And we had uh, Thurlow Rogers and Davis Feeney and Doug Shapiro. And everybody was really dialed in. We were so dialed in for the Olympics. And that's what our sponsor, 7-Eleven, wanted too. They wanted us, you know, that was their goal. They got into the sport of cycling way back when, because they really wanted swimming, but McDonald's already had swimming as an Olympic sport. So then they said, you know, the Olympic committee said, hey, you want to try cycling? Oh, and here's this famous speed skater, Eric Hyden, that also wants to do bicycle racing. So they got together and started building this team and this program. And so 7-Eleven poured in a lot of money into the team. They created a men's team, a women's team, a junior's team. Uh, they built two or three velodromes throughout the country. And, you know, so in 1984, when the Olympics finally happened, um, I think they got their payoff. You know, we won a bronze medal in the team time trial, 100-kilometer team time trial, which was, uh, thank God, you know, because um, the team time trial was in Los Angeles. The, the Olympics that year were in the Los Angeles. And a week prior to that uh, was the Olympic road race. And uh, Alexi Grello won the road race, which was really a big shock for us. You know, first American to win that gold medal for us. And then um, Davis Finney was fifth, Thorloa Rogers was sixth, and I was ninth. You know, so our whole four top four riders were in the top 10 at the Olympics in 84. And then a week later, we had the team time trail. And uh, we started out great. There were four guys, Roy Nickman, 
Davis Finney, Andy Weaver, myself. And the plan was that Andy Weaver was going to be the engine, like the main guy to go out hard to drive us, you know, for the first half of the race, the first 50K. And, well, unfortunately, Andy blew up after 25K. And so all of a sudden we're down to three riders, the last 75K. And so, you know, Davis had some good moments. Uh, Roy Nickman really came through. I had my moments. And at the, at the end, the Italians beat us by two minutes, you know, because I don't know. There were the Italians and they had just come up with the disc wheels, the solid disc wheels. And we didn't have that technology. They showed it to us a week prior and they asked if we wanted to use it. And we said, no way, because it totally changes the way you ride a Team Tantro, the way that you drop back and throw your bike. And it was just, we weren't comfortable with it. So the Italians beat us by two minutes. The Swiss beat us by seven seconds. And we beat the Dutch by four seconds. So I'm thankful we got a bronze medal. <laughs> so now there was almost 10 years in one answer. Let's go back right to the start. Your very first bike, Ron, did your parents buy it for you or you had to walk the dogs of the neighbor or do some babysitting to earn some little pocket money? How did you ever got your hands on your first bicycle and what was it? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's still hanging in the bike shop. Um, so the bike was a Nishiki competition um, and my dad had bought the bike shop And so he was paying us to work, you know, sweep the floors, answer the phones, build bikes a little bit. And so I saved up a, about half of it. And then my dad paid for the other half. And then I got that bike. And uh, for me, uh, that meant so much freedom. You know, that first bike is just living here in Colorado. It's not as crowded back in, you know, the late mid 70s. Um, I could ride up to Lookout Mountain, go up to Evergreen. Um, I remember one time I did such a long ride. Um, I went up over Squaw Pass and then Berthet Pass and then back over Squaw Pass and back home to, to Wheatridge. And I, I had never bonked so hard in my life. You know, everybody remembers that first bonk. <laughs> and I had no money in my pocket. I think I had, no, I had $2 in my pocket. So I stopped in Evergreen and chugged a chocolate milk. That didn't feel very good on the gut, but at least it got me home. So Yeah, that Nishiki competition, I rode for about uh, almost three years. And then I got a racing bike and Motobicon, an MBK, a purple one that I still, you know, I love the color of that. But uh, yeah, Nishiki competition. Jens, do you remember um, your first bike? Uh, yes, of course, um, because uh, we only had one company in East Germany producing things. One company for TV sets, one company for bicycles or motorbikes, whatever. So it was a Diamant bike. Well, you would translate it into Diamond. Um, it's Diamant. It's still existing, actually, by lucky coincidence. Trek bought that East German bike company because it's the oldest bike factory in Europe. And they thought, look, we cannot let it die and get a pass away. We have to save that company. And um, so now it's part of the Trek family. But yes, it was a Diamant bike, silver metallic. I loved it. I was in uh, love, shock, shock, love. You know, I saw it and I'm like, that's it. I'm nine years old and that's it. Yeah, mine was silver metallic too. Isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, I got my first bike um, 
after the Olympics in 1984. Um, Alexi Graywall, who you mentioned before, you mentioned a lot of really good names there. You know, Wheat Ridge, Cyclery, Davis, Eddie B, the team time trial, Alexi. But I was just a kid growing up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, and I was a ski racer at the time. You know, the Americans had just came off a huge medal run in the 1984 Winter Olympics. And I was trying to get better at skiing. And my dad suggested that I get a bike because he was a UPS driver up there in Aspen and he delivered to uh, Lexi's dad's place. And he said, hey, listen, there's a, the Olympics are coming up and the guy from up the valley is on the team. And long story short, we wound up watching the race. Um, obviously, it was pretty cool, you know, to know or have an Olympian, Olympic gold medalist in your in your valley. And my dad, the next the next uh, summer, bought me a Trek 660, and full Campanola Grupo. He bought it from the Hub of Aspen, uh, which was one of the stores that he delivered to. And everybody said, "My dad's name is Bob." They said, "Bob." do not buy your son this good of a bike. Like he has to earn it. He has to, you know, work for it. You cannot get him the top of the line Trek with campy, you know, I think the, the record Grupo right off the, right off the bat. And my dad said, well, I know my son and he's not going to want to ride around on, you know, a little clunker. So I'm going to get this bike for him. And he, and he did. And I got to race the Red Zinger mini classic. And then, um, that next year, I got to go to the Davis Finney Connie Carpenter camp, the first one they ever had, which was in Copper Mountain in 1986. And then I met Davis. You guys were racing the Rocky Mountain News Classic at that time. Oh. And he would like go and race and then come back and kind of like eat with us and then go back again. And um, that next year, I got to go to the Coors Classic. And I actually went to the final stage in North Boulder Park, which you actually wound up winning. Oh, wow. And I've got these great photos. My buddy, TJ Salvatore, came all the way from Glenwood Springs with me. He knew nothing about cycling. And um, I have photos with you and Davis and Roy back when he was on Levi's. And but Hanoi was there. Lamont was there. I mean, it was cycling utopia right and not to mention we had a a a movie come out about cycling so i am just this kid with next to no experience and um seeing the biggest stars seeing a movie with kevin costner in it and that was kevin costner before kevin costner but it was just like the perfect time to grow up in in colorado but the point i'm trying to get to is in 1987 I raced for the Wheat Ridge Cyclery team. In your dad's bike shop, your bike shop. In 1987, and wow. 1987. And I remember like it was yesterday when I got on the team and then I went to the next race, they gave me that black and white kind of almost, not quite a checker, but it was like black and white Re Re Wheat Ridge Cyclery jersey, a pair of Bole sunglasses, and a black and white Giro cover. Remember when the Giros were made from styrofoam? Right. And you, yeah. you could just change the cover? Right, right. And man, I felt like I had made it, man. <laughs> I had made it. And um, later that year, we had the Junior National Championships on the Morgul Bismarck. 
and I won the junior national championships in your jersey. Oh, right. So I just wanted to give you that little bit. I have a photo somewhere of me in the final, you know, 100 meters or 200 meters of that, that race. And I've had it on my whiteboard since you and myself and Chris uh, Carmichael were out in uh, the Tour of the Moon like three or four years ago. So I had this picture for Chris. I found that picture. I gave that picture to the Chris. And on my whiteboard for the last couple of years, I've had picture to Ron. So <laughs> check your mail. I'm going to go up into my attic and find that because, I mean, it was it's just a perfect, you know. Great. I'd love to see that. That'd be so cool. I love that, it's, you know. Because there's so many, the thing about bike racing is, is, you know, when you race a little race or a big race, you know, there are anywhere between 50 and 200 different stories, you know, kind of interweaved. And so it's just great to hear those. All righty. Tell us maybe a little bit once you moved over to Europe. How was it back then? No internet, no GPS, no international language schools, I suppose. you. I guess you wouldn't speak a word of Italian when you arrived there first. How was it? How did you get around in like uh, little cars? Did you have some sort of bus? You had a truck for your uh, belongings. Uh, where did you stay? Uh, highway hotels or tell us a little about, the, let's say, the first months of arriving in Europe. Was it chaos and mayhem or was it nicely organized? Oh, it was definitely chaos and mayhem, you know, because <laughs> we came up with, you know, we came over with a whole American squad, you know, Swaneers, uh, the directors. They had to arrange cars. Um, you know, I remember our first our first year that we went to Sicily to race. And, you know, the Italians had these nice buses and the, the Italians would come dressed in their cycling gear to breakfast. And then they would hop on their bus and they'd leave for the bike race. And we'd go, the bike race is three hours away. Why would they, why would these guys do that? And well, If you'd ever been in, you know, in Palermo or Catania or any of those Sicilian cities, you just know that traffic is terrible. It's just a total grind. And so they knew that. So they would leave to the race, you know, three hours before it start. And we'd mosey up to our room and get our clothes on. And a lot of times we didn't even get dressed until we got to the race. I don't know. We just had this thing with chamois time. We didn't want to wear our chamois for that long. And so... uh There was times when we were so late getting to the race, our director, Mike Neal, was driving on the sidewalk, getting past all the traffic jams, people jumping out of the way, and he's honking the horn, and we're all trying to put on our shorts, and we had been stuck in traffic, you know, for an hour, not sure we were going to make the start. And sure enough, you know, we'd just get right to the start, pull right in front of the start, and it'd be like, you know, the clown car. Everybody jumps out getting dressed, getting the bikes, throwing on our jersey, pinning on our numbers, putting, you know, some of us wore helmets. You know, Swan years are running around. It was a total, you know, total shit show is what it was, you know? And so the European guys were just laughing at us, you know? <laughs> and, and so uh, that was kind of our, our foray into, uh, into, the, into the Peloton. And I just remember doing some races on You'd go on as hard as you could up these hills, and all of a sudden there's this big, huge guy, Guido Bontempi, you know, big sprinter, just flying along. And I was, I was like nervous riding next to this guy. This, this was scary. He's just going as hard as he can to stay with the group, and I'm going as hard as I can to stay with the group. 
and you're just, you know, flying up these hills. And I think that was the biggest definition between the amateurs and the pros. You know, the amateurs started fast when we raced, and then it kind of just stayed maybe a little faster at the end, but it was kind of steady. Whereas back when I raced, you know, the pro races were just slow, slow, slow. And then the television helicopters or, you know, was getting close to the finish. Bam, you know, you're at the 50 kilometers an hour from 30 kilometers an hour. So um, if that, was the, that was the big difference between those amateur and pro races. And then also, you know, as a young guy, we didn't understand the history of, I didn't really understand the history of European cycling. I didn't know really who the stars were. I was really surprised how small most of those European stars were. Like, you know, you're tall, Jens. Bobby, you're good size. You know, I'm six foot. But, you know, Bindardi, no, and, you know, La Jarreta and all these guys, they're tiny. <laughs> they're short. And I was just amazed. I felt like a giant amongst these guys. And I remember climbing up a hill in, uh, was it Etoile de Bessage or the Tour de Man, one of those southern French races, and we're going up the front, and I'm fighting for position at the front and banging the handlebars. And uh, my teammate, the dog, got to Lourdes, and he goes, Hey, Ron, do you know who that is next to you? And I go, No, who's that little shrimp? And he goes, Oh, that's Bernardi No. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I better give him a little little room. I know who he is. <laughs> so um, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of learning lessons that we had to uh, kind of get through. I think one of the best times was when we were in the uh, Tour de Med and we were coming down along the coast and it had been windy and rainy and we were going to make a, a left turn up uh, Montferrand just right there. And so um, my, one of our riders, Ron Heyman, who's a Canadian, he'd been pro rider before, he goes, okay, guys, we're going to get to the front and we're going to give Wookie a lead up. That was my nickname, Wookie. And so... Um, yeah, we get to the, you know, we're we're going to the front and there's the team and they're pulling and pulling and all the European guys are kind of looking, looking at us and laughing a little bit. But as we're turning, the road is turning and the wind is starting to come into a crosswind. And uh, sure enough, you know, we had the whole peloton strung out to the left gutter. And then when we hit that climb, I just punched it. You know, I was so excited. I just took off. And then you know, kind of gathered myself a little bit. And then all of a sudden there's Lamond and there's Phil Anderson and um, a couple other guys, Eric Caritu. And so I just slack up just a little bit because I'm like, okay, I got to be a little bit more judicious here. And I kind of like waiting for somebody else to attack and Eric Caritu attacks. And so, um, you know, I don't know really who this guy is. It's just some skinny, you know, French guy. And so he's getting away and nobody's reacting. So I attack and I go as hard as I can. Unfortunately, he made it to the top and I got second. But that was a good lesson for me, you know, because it was like, you know, when those opportunities come up, you got to grab them. So then the next weekend we had the uh, Trophy of La Guelia. And this, these are, you know, the early season races in Italy. Trophy of La Guelia is the season opener. And uh, so you do... Is it two laps or three laps? I forget how many laps you do. And then the last time you come back to the start-finish area, you know, I had I had been riding well, and I was getting ready to set up for the sprint. Well, we took a left turn through some neighborhood, and it added a couple more stair-step hills. And I had no idea what was going on, because back then, you know, you got this little graph paper of what the profile was and a little map, 
that was about yay big, you know, so you couldn't, <laughs> you really had no idea, you know, you did some loops. And then, so we did those hills and then we came back onto the main road where I knew where we were and it was just the little last gradual uphill through the tunnel and then the finish line was on the other side. And um, there's an Italian guy who's pulling Cerrone along, you know, Bippy Cerrone, and they're going, but I can see that there's somebody up there and I know that they're not going to catch, it didn't feel like they were going to catch him. So I just like looked over and I just sprinted as hard as I could and I remember Cerrone just like looking at me like, who is that guy? <laughs> Who is that guy? And so I jumped across and I caught the Italian champion, Alberto uh, Algieri. Alberto Algieri. And uh, so I caught him and we pulled and we pulled and uh, we got to the, we got close to the finish line and then he pulled and then he swung off and I was like, no, I don't have to pull. You know, you're, you're the Italian champion. You have everything to prove. And so he kind of knew what was up. And so he went as hard as he could. And then I jumped and I beat him easily in the sprint. So that was my first, first pro victory, you know, and that was just that, you know, a couple months into racing in Europe. And that really said, cemented the team kind of like, you know, these guys are pretty good. You know, these American guys are pretty good. Unlike the American guys that the year prior in 1984, when we were racing the Olympics, uh, John Eustace took an American group of B amateurs and put them in the Giro d'Italia. And, uh, and those guys were just, you know, they didn't finish, they crashed, they were, they were just not prepared for that big level racing. And so when we got over to Italy, they just assumed that all Americans were just kind of cowboys and didn't know what was going on. So there's another long-winded answer. <laughs> Man, it, it's like you're just picking apart like every question you know, like Liguelia. I mean, Jens and I have done Liguelia. Like we, when you're describing it, I'm kind of like, yep, yeah, I, I know where that is, but it, it's not an easy race to win. And I remember Jim Okowitz telling me this story. I remember Mike Neal telling yep. me this story that you winning that really set the tone for the respect. And I was going to ask you, you know, you said in 1984 that you guys went over there and won 60% of the races and then I wasn't aware of the, you know, that American team that that John put together may have undone some of that like hoopla around the American riders. But, you know, your result there was one of the reasons, if not the main reason, that you guys got a invitation to the Giro. Exactly. And then, yeah. you know, Jim's telling me like we had no buses, no trucks. We had to like, all of a sudden, like a month or a little bit before, like we had to figure out how we're going to do the Giro. And then you go to the Giro and you win a stage. And then Andy Hampston, who was on loan to you guys, wound up winning the second to last stage or the last stage. I forget. I think it was in, stage 20. So second to I, last stage. I won the 17th and he won the 19th. So it was, yeah, a little bit before the end. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's what I'm getting to here is like you you were such a bridge to so many of these things that could have gone pear-shaped right yeah like you guys if you didn't win that race maybe you didn't get in into the giro and then because of the giro you guys got into the tour and then you know you guys won a stage of the tour with davis and then you know a year or two later with alex stita taking the yellow jersey i mean these were things and memories that like i was growing up with and i'd have to read like in the printed publication, Velo News, 
or cycling. There was another one. I forget. Cycling news, maybe. Yeah, but, you had cycling you know, news. Ne- yeah, right. I, I forget which one it was, but like hearing the stories come from you guys at different times is is so cool because like that was a huge step, right? And by the time that my generation got there, we still had some of the the issues with the European riders. But it's kind of cool to hear that you had the same thing maybe maybe a decade or so earlier because nowadays like you know the the kids have it a little bit easier but like they still have to uproot their lives and move to Europe and you know we're having great success you know um Matteo Jorgensen just won a race we had um Quinn Simmons win a stage down in Argentina we had Nielsen Paulus win and I just hope that our listeners and some of those young kids can listen to some of these stories and say, oh, man, that's how it started. It was Wookie. <laughs> so before I even go any further, what was the origin of that nickname? And can you share some of the other nicknames of the other teammates that you had? Uh, well, I can share my nickname, but, you know, we're a pretty close group. You know, uh, I think like... Uh, Jeff Bradley is Brad. Brad Dog is what we call them. Plow is uh, Tom Schuler because uh, he was kind of like Mr. Magoo. You know, he would just, he, I mean, he actually, when we were racing amateur, he got, he got them to pull, he had missed the flight and they were pulling back the jetway and he got them to put the jetway back on so he could board the plane. I mean, he was amazing. He could, I mean, he could tell, you know, nowadays that would be impossible, but back in the 80s, it was possible. And so, uh, you know, and so um, Chris Carmichael is the kid, you know, so just just some fun stuff. But my nickname, I sort of started out with Captain America because I had won the national championship and I had the jersey as an amateur. And, but then um, I had had, you know, the way I kind of, I had a lot of, I have a lot of body hair. And then also when I win, you know, I make kind of a wiki sound. So <laughs> they just, they just came up and you don't get to choose your nickname. You know, your team chooses your nickname. And so that's what stuck for me. But uh, yeah, you know, the, if you um, talk about those early days racing and, and earning respect, you know, we we earned the respect of the amateurs in '84, but then you, in the pro peloton, you have to redo. You know, you have to really show that you're the next level up. And so, uh, you know, when the, when we raced the Giro that year in '85, that first week was really hard because um, there are a lot of you know the Italian field sprints are just totally crazy. I mean, racing is a little different than it's. Racing now is different than it was back then. Um, back then in the Giro, you would ride at 30 kilometers an hour, literally, for four hours until the helicopter showed up. And then the helicopters and the television showed up, and then it, the race just lit up, you know, and it was chaotic and crazy. And back then they had jet helicopters, so the jet engines on the helicopters were so loud that you couldn't hear and you don't realize how much you use your hearing when you're racing because you know you're listening for sounds and people yelling or you know kind of what's happening behind you or there's a crash in front of you but when you can't hear anything and there's a little like somebody has a fall or crash normally you get an instinct and you move and get out of the way there it was just 
it was just a pylon. People would just be piling into the crash and there would be 30 guys in this pile because the television was a little slow. The jet helicopter came down, made it a little bit scary for a bit of big pile up, and then it made big news. <laughs> it was crazy. But, uh, you know, there was uh, those first field sprints were just crazy. And Davis Finney was in there getting fifth and sixth. And Jeff Bradley was trying to lead him out. And Tom Schuler was there. And oh, by the way, our training camp for the Tour of Italy was the Tour of Baja. We were in Mexico racing the Tour of Baja, <laughs> sleeping in military tents and eating rice and beans for our preparation. So, um, and that year we hired Bob Roll and Andy Hampston to join us. So the Giro, the first pro race for Andy Hampston was the Giro d'Italia. Same for same thing for Bob Roll was the Giro d'Italia, and so. You know, Bob is a very animated guy, right? We all know Bob Roll. And, you know, he gets, you know, he, you know, calls up to Larry Laurel Fignon and goes, hey, Larry, how are you? You know, or Pepe Cerrone, you know, just gives him all sorts of shit. But Bob was not a good bike handler at that time. He was just, when you see these helicopter shots overhead of the Peloton, there'd be this like donut and there'd be this one rider in the minute and he'd be like wiggling all over. Well, that'd be Bob Roll, you know. <laughs> All the writers would be like, oh, here's this big crazy American. Stay away from him. And he would tell the Italian writers, yeah, I live under, you know, I live under a bridge in Switzerland in a tent and, you know, I have Indian heritage. And <laughs> he just had them going. But, you know, the, we, I remember, you know, sometimes you get in a tussle with some of these Italian guys. And one time I got in a tussle with this little Italian guy, you know, half my size. But that's back then when you had the brake levers coming up through the hoods. You know, they didn't go underneath the handlebars. And so he reached over and grabbed my handle. He grabbed my uh, cables with my handlebar. And that is the scariest thing is like all of a sudden somebody has your handlebars and they're steering your bike for you. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to shut up here because he's got my life in his hands. But, you know, after I won that stage, um, stage 17, and, you know, I can share more details about that. But just all of a sudden, you're in the peloton. You know what it's like when you win a race, and it's so euphoric, but then in a stage race, you have to get out there and ride again, right? It's hard. <laughs> you suffer, right? You're just like, ah, oh. you use up all that energy. Well, what I remember is, is that, you know, I'm just sitting there plodding along, and then you start racing and fighting for position, and, you know, you kind of bump into guys, and then usually they're like, oh, an American, they hook you. But all of a sudden, it's like, oh, hey, it's Kiefel. Okay, yeah, they give you a little more room. And so it's that, you know, you, you kind of earn your way into the, the good graces of the Peloton, and then they appreciate you. But then it's a little harder to get away and do your stuff. <laughs> the downside. And we'll be right back after this short break. So now that you talked about all these intense moments with you and your American teammates, I believe you, for some of them, you probably built up a lifelong friendship. Are you still staying in contact with some of them or calling each other, whatever, once a month, every few months, or do you lost trace of some of them? No, you know, we just uh, had a uh, 7-Eleven team reunion in Park City in November. So there were 20 guys, 21 guys that showed up to Park City. And, uh, you know, it was snowy and what have you, but it's just like war buddy. You know what it's like? You just get together. Everybody knows, you know, I know what, 
all your things, you know, it's what stays in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's the same thing in the Peloton. And uh, so you, you know each other. You don't have to put on any airs. And it's really a lot of fun. You just get together and relax and share stories and catch up. And so, you know, we've been doing this for every five years. The pandemic hit, so we missed it for about seven years. But, you know, we're getting older. I think we'll probably wind up doing it every three years. But it's still, it's just great to get together because you can share some of those old stories. You can interweave some of the new stuff. Um, we're all getting a little older, a little slower. But I think the cool part was, um, you know, Davis has Parkinson's. And, um, but he was such a trooper. We went on this like 12-mile hike through, you know, the trails and it was snowy and all that. And he did the whole thing. You know, he's he just, you know, right out there going. And, you know, certainly he was tired after the end. But, you know, it just shows his tenacity, his mental fortitude of he's not going to be put down by anything. And that was the same thing in racing. You know, if uh, if it came to a field sprint, no matter how Davis felt, I knew if I could get him up towards the front, he would put out everything, you know. And nine times out of ten, he could win the race. And so it was just a real pleasure for me to be able to work with Davis. So if I could get him in that position, you know, he could have some success. But tell me a little bit more about your relationship with Davis, because you guys were tight and probably still are tight. And of course, he was the prolific winner all the time. You would win your fair share of races. But you mentioned earlier on in the podcast that you guys grew up as competitors. When did that switch to a brotherhood where you would do anything for Davis and, and he would do anything for you? Well, it was really kind of in 1982. Uh, the 7-11 team started it in 81. And then in 82, we both joined. And so Jim Okowitz, Oach, was really pursuing Davis. And and, and uh, Oach said, well, who else do you think should be on the team? And he suggested that I join the team. So I joined the team then. And so then in 1982, uh, you know, we, we rode a lot together. We trained a lot together, um, you know, living up in Boulder and, you know, you, you know how it is. You just ride for hours and hours with your friends and you kind of solve the problems worlds as you're just riding side by side. You know, I don't know. Training's a bit different. It's a lot more structured, but back in the day, you'd go out and you'd ride for hours three times a week and you'd ride together with your teammates and sometimes you push hard, sometimes you take it easy, but it was really a good work. And, uh, so, you know, we grew, really grew some strong friendships and I have a talent for like being really able to really light it up at the end so fast, like you, Jens, that not, nobody is really going to be able to come around. And I had a sense, an innate sense. So I got really good at leading Davis out in the criteriums. And we both could bomb the corners. I mean, in 1984, after the Olympics, we went to the Tour of Switzerland, the William Tell. Um, and it's an amateur race then. And we were racing down, and the finish was in the streets of Zurich, and it was pouring rain. And all the Swiss guys were, like, telling us, hey, careful, there's these train tracks and all that. And Davis and all that, yeah, okay, okay. And then I got to the lead out, you know, and sure enough, there's train tracks everywhere, but that didn't slow us. You know, we're like, ripping through the corners, bunny hopping the train tracks. And Davis wins a race and I get second. And then I think the next guy is like three or four seconds behind us. So, you know, it was, it worked out well in that uh, I could go hard. I could really use my skills. And then there was a big payoff with Davis just being right there. And he, and he trusted my wheel a lot of the times. 
And but you know, Davis still heck, he won a lot of races on his own. I think in uh, when he won a second tour stage in Bordeaux, that was him on his own fighting through that peloton, fighting. You know, I was trying to get up there to help him, but it was too chaotic and too crazy. And he pulled off the victory on his own. So, you know, that man had a lot. He has so much talent. The thing with Davis is, is that, you know, when we first got those little Avocet computers and the little red Avocet computers. Of course. Yeah, that, you know, before that, we had no idea how long races really were. You know, in France, they always lied. when We figured that out quickly. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, this is a 100-mile race. It turns out to be 120 miles when you really put on your Avocet. But, you know, Davis, if we had a 96... If we're going to train 100 miles and it was only 96 miles, well, he'd ride out two miles and two miles back, and I called it good at 96 miles. But yeah, that's you know that was his that was his mentality, and uh, it, it paid huge dividends. He won a stage in the Tour. Uh, we got a bronze in the Olympics. Um, he uh, you know won the course overall, which was just amazing for a sprinter to win a mountain race, but he pulled it out. So uh, you know, I, we are good friends. Um, it's not like we talk a lot together, but when we get together, it's just very comfortable and easy. So b back in your, your days then with your racing schedule, would you do any sort of training camps in between during the season? Or is it just one training camp at the start of the year and then everybody does whatever he wants between the races? Or did you have once in Europe, did you had so many races, there was never really space for training was your training any sort of structure or just just go out and ride hard no well i like to think we had structure but you know it's definitely different um you know we had our, our doctor team doctor uh, massimo testa you know and he knew all knew a lot about sports physiology and all that um we would have a training camp you know in california somewhere in in the napa valley or santa cruz Uh, San Diego a couple times. But uh, once the season started, we rarely had training camps. I think we may have gotten together a little bit before the tour of Switzerland, but there were very few training camps. It was just early season, and then everybody kind of prepared on your own. And, you know, back in the day, you'd race 100 and 120 days a year. I don't know how much many races the guys do now. But, you know, so that means you're racing, uh, you're racing uh, you know, every third day. And if you wanted to get some speed, you'd go up to Belgium and you'd ride those crazy kermesses in the rain and in the wind, you know. And um, But, you know, that's that kind of racing, racing in Belgium, um, it totally sucked, but it was really good for your skill. You know, you learn how to bunny hop curbs and, and ride on the cobbles. And if something happens, learning tactics, you know, paying attention to the Belgium because the guy in front of you will run you into an hole. Uh You know, there was, there was a lot of different ways of racing that, you know, from racing in Belgium to Spain, which was a lot of chicken chasing back in the day. You know, you'd ride slow, then one guy would attack, and then you'd ride slow, and another guy would attack. It was very interesting, the different styles of racing when you went from country to country in the days, when, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when I raced. That that brings me to a, a question that I wanted to ask you, because nowadays with this younger generation— I already mentioned how the Americans have come out swinging, winning races, you know, all over the place. But Tade Pogachar is winning races. Like his first two races, he wins in huge solo moves, very, very dominant. But for you guys, I heard stories back in the day, and maybe you can confirm or deny this, that Perry Nice 
the prologue of Perry Nice that Steve Bauer won the prologue of Perry Nice one year with 1,000 kilometers in his legs and didn't even shave his legs before the race. Is that like a, a myth or could you <laughs> confirm I can that? I cannot confirm or deny that. You'll have to ask that to Steve. You know, it was, but, you're, you're... But, it, but it was different though. You're right, Bobby, in that, um, like, you know, Noel Dionquiara, right? Noel, he was, uh, we just lost him this year, but um, Noel was a, a team director with uh, 7-Eleven and worked with the junior team and, and all of that. But Noel was like the first Belgian that went to Spain in December and trained really hard in December and January. And then when the races started in February, he was in great shape. And so he would go and win all these races, whereas a lot of the European guys, you would do this long, slow, distant riding, kind of getting your body going. And then you use the races to sort of amp up your power and your speed, and you suffered through that, and that's how you got into shape. And so that was kind of a bit of the history. So... um could a Steve have done that? Certainly possible. <laughs> I'm not. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but yes, it's possible. Now we talked so much about the past. What actually happens at your career end, and what you what did you do since then until today? I know that's a great question. So, um, I uh, in '92 I did my last race with uh, Motorola. That's when Lance joined the team, and I think Bobby, you joined. Her? Did you join? No, I was not there yet. Okay, you weren't there yet. Okay, so uh, Lance joined in 92, and then I came back to the United States and raced uh, three more years for Coors Light, and then I retired at the end of 95, and I went working straight away for my family bike shop, uh, Wittrich Cyclery. And so I was there for a long, long time. Um, I did, I was the president of US Pro, and I've you know kind of been involved in a couple different things until, um, you know, about at one point I ran Wheatridge Cyclery as the general manager and president. And then we sold the shop about uh, almost two years ago now. And so that was, you know, I, I've had a lot of uh, lesson in business and finance and operation, you know, because the bike shop was, you know, 65 employees and 10 to $12 million a year in sales. So it wasn't just a small, small enterprise. And we were well known within the cycling industry. So when we sold that, um, I stepped into my next. I invested, and now I'm an advisor into a an app for cyclists. It's called Preeb, P-R-E-E-D. And actually, this week we're just launching our open beta. So this is perfect. I get to market it a little bit. And so it's like a LinkedIn social media network for cyclists. And so basically, you can go out, you can set a route plan a ride. You don't have to set a route, but you can invite your friends to this ride. And on the platform, they can say yes, no, or maybe. Um, and if you want to just go ride and meet some people, you can set your ride as a public ride. And so, hey guys, we're going to ride up Lookout Mountain and do this, you know, 50 mile bike ride. I'm going to meet in Golden at 9 a.m. if you want to come join me. And so it'll be anybody can show up. So there's that piece of it. The platform also Uh, through Prime will feed you uh, content and information. So as a rider, you could be a road rider, gravel, mountain, urban, whatever your bent is, we'll send you some information. We'll feed you through a daily feed. And then if you plug in your uh, Garmin or Wahoo or, you know, kind of share your data with us, we'll be able to start making suggestions like, hey, do you need a new chain? Or have you thought about some new tires? And, uh, and then... 
if there's a local bike shop in the area and uh, you know that you need some new tires, maybe that bicycle shop can serve you up some sort of like, hey, here's a discount on some tires or we can help you with some service. And then my big role is going to be for bicycle shops on the platform. We're going to create a community. So each bike shop can have their own community and then they can invite their customers to join. And then through that community, you can have conversation you can set up a shop ride. You can limit the number of riders that can come. You'll know how many people are showing up. Um, and then also, if you're on the platform, the, joining the platform will be free, just FYI. There'll be no fee for that. Um, but if you're a bike shop and you have other cyclists in the area that are not your community members, then we'll be able to say, hey, do you want to send some information? Hey, if this is a mountain biker, got a new helmet, I like to let these people know about it. So... Um, we're just rolling that out this week, as a matter of fact, and uh, so we're excited about it. It's just in beta. There's going to be so many more features added to it, but uh, it's an exciting project. So, you know, yet when I uh, when I was racing amateur, you know, the big guys uh, racing back then on the East German side, um, Jan Schur, Olaf Ludwig was, you know, a big sprinter, um, and so... Did you have much contact with those guys? I mean, were you part of that system? Did you kind of get to participate in some of their camps and their training? I'm just kind of curious if you, you know, kind of took on some of that mentality as they got into. Uh... Um, I think um, I was just 18 when the wall came down and then East Germany existed for another year from 98 until 1990. East Germany was free and existed as its own country before we got reunited in 1990. So there was only one year for me with a proper East German system. And uh, Olaf Ludwig and the big hitters, they quickly found um, contract as professionals. So um, I did race with Olaf occasionally, but, but never in training camps or on the same team. Um, Olaf now does uh, bike tours to uh, Bulgaria. His second wife is from there. So he's doing uh, bike tours there. Jan sure he had a fitness and wellness hotel. Oh, nice. Um, don't know what, um, what happened or what's uh, going on there now. Yeah, there's a few of them. And uh, yeah, with some of them, I still have some sort of contact because, yeah, they're good guys, hardworking guys. And um, yeah, they, they, they were tough cookies. Olaf Ludwig was, when I was a kid, uh, inspiration for me to keep racing when he won his first peace race. He was a spectacular fast sprinter in his younger years as an amateur. It was unreal. So uh, yes, I do know all these names. Um, did you ever have a chance to race against Sergei Sucherutschenko from Russia? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, or yeah. Or Richard Tchaikovsky from Poland. Yeah, yeah. They raced against Tchaikovsky, no, but Sukhrutchenkov, yeah, because he won the Olympics in 80. And, yeah, uh, and, and I think Sukhrutchenko was, I, I I think, not far from Eddie Merck's quality. I think, yeah, I think I, he was just yeah, outstanding talent. Eddie Merck's Bernardi, no, he kind of had that same. Um, he raced the course classic with us in 1984, I think they came over, 83. I don't remember what year they were, but... Yeah, he was on the team, just a big motor. I just remember him just pushing these big gears, you know, just motoring along, and you just like, he was amazing. Also, like you mentioned, Eddie Merckx, um, you know, I've ridden with Eddie Merckx just in some training camps, but Eddie's pedal style was so amazing, so fluid and smooth. 
And I think Sukhodachenkov had a lot of that same talent and ability in that. Yeah. So, you know, he was he was one of the stars and Betternov, I think, was the other star on the Russian team too. Between those two, they I think they won the peace race also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So one last question for you, Ron. Who in the Peloton, either current or semi-current, do you look at and say, gosh, he has he races with the same style, the same panache as I did? <laughs> Hi, tall head. I have no clue. I haven't even thought about that, Bobby. That's that's uh uh I thought that was gonna be an underhanded softball, but like the way knowing you and 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 Jens, I I see you guys very very similar in in that way, you know, can win when it's time to win, but also you know the greatest teammate and just overall great dude. Well, I think I think Jens is uh, Jens had a bigger motor than I did. My motor was like fast, but it didn't have as many deep roots as like Jens. You know, you could just go out there all day and hammer and hammer, and that wasn't my style. I could go 120%, but then I was at like 80%. And I think Jens was able to operate more at that 100, 105% level for a lot longer. So, yeah. Well, Ron, it was great going down memory lane with you. And again, wanted to thank you for everything that you've done for the sport of cycling here in the USA. I know the list is massive, but I have been inspired to get a few more of you guys on the podcast to hear more of these stories of of how it worked for you in in your day so thank you so much for for finding time to to meet with us today and thanks again for being our guest on bobby and jens thank you guys bobby jens is really my pleasure and thank you for uh, bringing up you know some of that old cycling history and, and keeping it going i really appreciate that well that's all the time we have for this week huge thanks to ron keeple for being our guest thanks for listening and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends the show was a bellow news production in association with shock giraffe the producer was mark payne and this episode was edited by tim moza follow us on twitter and instagram at bobby and jens and maybe you can share your cycling nicknames can you beat Wookie?